Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala badihi alladhi nustafa Amma ba'd Fa'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Yawmahum barizuna la yakhfa ala Allahi minhum shay' لمن الملك اليوم لله الواحد القهار صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام للمرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having guided us, for having granted us iman, for bestowing us with so many of his bounties and mercies. And we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and upon his family and his wives and his progeny and all those and his companions and all those that followed them in their ways. <coughs> Last week we did ghaffar and we skipped to ghafur so that we could do a comparison between the two, show the difference. This week we're going on to qahar. So Imam Ghazali, when he talks about qahar, he sums it up in two sentences. It's very simple. He puts it, basically, okay, number one, qahar, its root, qahar means to conquer and to vanquish. So we could say that al-qahar is the subduer. So Imam Ghazali, he basically mentions saying that al-qahar is the one who breaks the backs of his enemies, who lays ruin to the tyrants, who lays ruin and completely shatters those that oppress. And that's, that's basically it. He even says that is all. <laughs> so now, <clears throat> some of the other ulama, they've gone a little bit further explaining al-qahar. And they tell us that qahar means uh, the being who, yeah, he, he subdues those that oppose him. Right? Or he subdues those that are tyrants. <clears throat> However, they mentioned that this type of subduing that takes place, meaning when qahar becomes manifest, then it is a type of subduing that is linked with humiliation. So somebody who has oppressed and been a tyrant, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them respite and He allows them to, He gives them that opportunity and that chance to stop their oppression, right? to come out of it. However, if after that respite, they are still not they still do not end their, their oppressive state, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He subdues them through completely humiliating them. So this is obviously a very dangerous state. We shouldn't, you know, this tells us that we can't ever think that we have gone beyond the reach of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, He will catch us, either in this dunya or in the akhirah. And you find so many oppressors, right, that they, they oppressed uh, and this could be Muslim or non-Muslim, right? They oppressed and they oppressed and they oppressed. And then even sometimes at the end of their life, what happens? They sit in you know, a, a state of complete trauma and coma and um, they're basically laying ruin, right? For, and they're still alive, right? And this, is, this has happened. It's, there's current oppressors that are in this type of state. Not to say that if you are in a coma, then this means that you are you know, uh, getting humiliated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we find... Uh, the ulama sometimes they mention that at times there are certain types of comas where you are literally going back and forth between this life and the next. So the sakarat al-maut. We've heard of the sakarat al-maut. What is sakarat al-maut? Sakarat al-maut is that, that moment when your body, when your soul is transitioning from this dunya into the next. And so you are seeing, like there's things, there's, there's different creations all around us, right? Angels and jinn, for example. And we don't see them. However, in that moment, you start, the next world becomes, starts opening up to you. And so you start seeing, 
these other creations, these other beings, the, the shayateen, the jinn, uh, the angels. And it's a very difficult moment. For, for most people, it's a very difficult moment, right? That, the moment of death when they are going back and forth. And so some of the ulama, they write that one type of coma is that you are constantly going back and forth in the sakrat. You are coming in and out of it, in and out of it. And so it's very terrifying for some people, right? It's more terrifying in, in those states. And so this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala catching the tyrants. Imam Razi rahimullah, who is a great mufassir, great wrote, he was a great scholar, he wrote a very famous tafsir work. Um, and his tafsir, a lot of it resonates around uh, logic and theory. Um, and a lot of it is very linguistically based. So he, give, he goes into the linguistics of the Arabic language and the Quran, why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses certain words in certain places as opposed to other words. So he mentions that in this verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that on that day they will come forth and nothing will be hidden from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That to who does dominion of that day belong? It belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-wahid, al-qahar. So he says that qahar is a, Imam Razi takes note saying that qahar is a name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that whenever it comes in the Qur'an, it is brought along with this other name, wahid. Wahid means one. So whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings qahar, he also brings wahid with it. Imam Razi rahimullah, he mentions that the reason for this is because there can truly only be one subduer. That's it. You cannot have multiple subduers. That every single creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, every single creation is the subject of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That it is subservient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one way or another. And then he goes on saying that this answers many uh, theological questions. You guys might have, especially in university, you guys might have heard some of these questions. So it, this, uh, this concept or this, this, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has brought wahid and qahar together answers the question that could there be another deity? Could there be another God other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It answers the question that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence, is it a mere possibility or is it a necessity? Right? And there's so many questions. If you guys, I wouldn't recommend taking philosophy classes in university and all that. Uh, if you want to read philosophy, read Imam Ghazali's works. Right? Read, read Imam Razi and things like that. <clears throat> um, and the reason, the reason is because these types of questions are posed. Right? And now we don't know how to answer them. So if we can't answer them, all of a sudden we start thinking that you know, the Islam doesn't have answers to these questions. Whereas scholars wrote answers to these questions hundreds and hundreds, of, and hundreds of years ago. Right? These are all those things pertaining to our aqidah. And these are questions that we should, every single one of us should be able to answer. And I know a lot of people that because they can't answer these very questions, they become atheist. Right? And they'll go to people who seem religious and they'll ask them these questions, and this religious individual, although they might be very pious, they sometimes they don't know the answer because they are not well-versed in scholarship, right, in knowledge. So when they can't answer this question, then the, the questioner thinks, oh, okay, well, there's no answer. Islam doesn't have an answer. So do you guys know the answer to this question? Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence, is it necessary or is it a mere possibility? Meaning if, it, if we say it's a mere possibility, then that, that implies that Allah ta'ala can come out of existence which is another question that might be asked in the philosophy classes, that if Allah can do anything, if Allah can do anything, then can He bring Himself out of existence? Can He, lift a, can he create a rock that He cannot lift? Can He create another God? Right? And the questions vary, right? There's, they don't, they don't, the, the principal question, 
the principle behind all these questions is exactly the same. So if you can answer one, you should be able to answer all of them. And there's no way to go over every single question because the variable changes. So what is it? Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence, is it a mere possibility or is it necessary? Is it required? If we go deeper, if we study into aqidah, and people think aqidah is very simple, I already know my aqidah. We don't know our aqidah. If we can't answer this question, do we know our aqidah, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we say that there are certain things, and this might sound a little odd to us, okay? But there are certain things that are absolutely wajib, necessary, absolutely, like His existence. And there are certain things that are uh, a mere possibility, right? Like Him bringing us into existence, right? It's possible, it's ja'iz, it's permissible, He can do it, He can take us out of existence, our existence is not necessary. And there are certain things that are impossible. That sound crazy to anyone? Are we saying that there's things that are impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? This is a catch-22 question that, that we are asked. That you say, Wallahu ala kulli shayin qadir. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everything. But then you're saying that, well, can Allah ta'ala, so you're saying He has power over everything. So then can He create a rock that He cannot lift? If we say, well, yes He can. Okay, so then He creates that rock, now He can't do it. How does He have power over everything? If we say, no, He can't do it. Well, you said He can do whatever He wants, so that means... He can't create the rock. Cash 22, right? Can he create another God? So this verse, Wahid al-Qahar, tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence is absolutely necessary. It is absolutely necessary because if his existence was a mere possibility, that would mean something could have come into existence without him or something could be sustained without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeping it sustained. So his existence is necessary. It has to be there. He cannot, yes, he cannot take himself out of existence. To take himself out of existence is an impossibility. Because if he could, the whole world would fall apart. And it would tell us, secondly, if we were to say, well, then he could create a world where it wouldn't fall apart uh, and he could take himself out of existence. That would mean the world does not need to be sustained by him. And that, na'udhu billah, we seek refuge in Allah from, from, from entertaining such thoughts. But that we would say that the world is not in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you see where the, the cash 22 is. Whereas if you nip it in the bud and say, yes, it's, it's impossible for Allah to take himself out of existence, everything else finishes. So how do we answer this question then? That if we say, Wallahu ala kulli shay'in qadir, that Allah has power over everything. The ulama say, shay refers to created things. Anything that Allah creates, he has power over it. Anything that he can create, he has power over it. And if, he were, if it were to be something that he would not have power over, it's impossible for it to come into existence. Like a deity that is more powerful than Allah. Why can we not have two gods? We cannot have two gods because just like if you, you know, what happened to Rome? Uh, when the empire got so big, how did they decide to govern it? They decided that there would be a ruler to rule the east and the west and that that would make it easier. Then the two ended up having a civil war and that was part of the downfall of the Romans. So if there were two gods, like if you think about Greek mythology, always a, there's always a, a conflict going on between Zeus and Poseidon, right? That the god of the, the skies and the god of the sea are always fighting. This is what would happen if we had two gods. So it's impossible for there to be another god because one of them would have to be the subduer. And the one that is the subduer is the true god. And the one that can be subdued, he could not be god because he can be subdued. Does this answer that question now? So if you guys are posed with this question, which most in university, when it comes, it usually comes in, at the university setting. You get, there's a whole, I mean, aqidah is a whole science on its own. That everybody should, should seek out the ulama and, and learn it properly. 
<coughs> right? So Imam Razi says that all these questions are handled. Now, all of these questions are handled. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one, and that there is nothing that can subdue him, and there could be no other deity except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the, the ulama write that there is, and we'll get into this later, but they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the dominator, the subduer, his qahar, that attribute of his being manifested, that attribute of his being manifested to the world, that him, after respite, destroying those that oppress, there is a, a small barrier that is stopping this manifestation from coming into play. Not some type of barrier that Allah Ta'ala is trying and He's unable to, no. But it is another attribute of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala and this is the attribute of Latif. Latif will do later on, it, it comes soon, inshallah. So Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, then he says that what, what does it mean for us to have a share of this, this attribute of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, Qahar? That this is to subdue our enemies. Does this mean we seek out enemies and we try to humiliate them? No. It means that the next question that is posed is, who is our greatest enemy? What? Who? Shaitan. Shaitan. Yeah, right? The shayateen. Huh? No, our greatest enemy. And a person who opposes Allah, like, they're not necessarily our enemy, right? Allah Ta'ala will handle those people, right? They oppose Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is Imam Ali's theme? Okay, the shayateen, yeah, you can say. But our nafs also, right? The soul, this is our greatest enemy. And he says, what is the, what is shaitan's tactic with the soul? What is his, what is his tactic? What is his strategy? How does he entice a person? What is the thing that is the most enticing to an individual? He highlights that the most enticing thing, his proof for this is from Surah Yusuf. Wherein? The beauty of Yusuf was so extreme that Zulaikha, a noble woman, her lust became too much for her and she went after him. So exposing ourselves to beauty, it entices our, it, 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 it entices our lust. And this is the greatest strategy of shaitan, that he tries to use our desire of beauty and our lust to bring our downfall. That this is the biggest strategy and trick that shaitan has. So Imam Ghazali goes on saying that whoever annihilates his ego, he takes command of his ego. Whoever destroys, whoever subdues his nafs, his ego, his lower self, then he has subdued his ego. Because shaitan, he doesn't actually get us to do anything. He just whispers to us. He doesn't force us to do anything, right? What does he do? He tries to lay the breadcrumbs for our nafs. He lays the breadcrumbs for our nafs and he gets our nafs to make us want to do something. He entices our nafs our lower self, that is what shaitan does. And so if we forget about shaitan, we have to go after our nafs. We have to subdue our nafs. And when we take command of our ego, then what does that mean? That means we have overcome our own tyranny. We have overcome our own tyranny. Not only with lust, but with everything. All other types of oppressors, what do they do? They let their nafs get out of control, and then they go into oppression, right? Be it with greed or whatever, right? P politics, all of this stuff. All, any, any way, shape, or form that a person can oppress, it is kindled in his nafs. So we have to suppress, we have to take control of our ego. And he says that once we take control of our ego, then such a person becomes strong enough to execute that which is right in every situation. Because what happens when we are faced with some type of decision uh, in any situation, we take one way or the other, right? One decision or the other we make. 
but we don't know if the decision we're making is correct or not. And what's worse is that we fool ourselves and justify to ourselves into making the wrong decision, knowing that it's the right decision, but we justify it to ourselves and say it's the right decision. Right? We'll justify it to ourselves. And so if we take hold of our nafs, take hold of our ego, then we are able to act accordingly in every situation. And he says that whoever annihilates his desires, then he gives life to his soul. That to give life to our soul, like we talked about so many times, and we, and we mentioned several, what, a couple of months back or so, that the battleground is, the battleground is the heart. And who is fighting? The soul and the nafs. Right? So then when we annihilate our nafs, then we give life and we give strength to our soul. And the ulama write also, they say that what happens? We usually try to express our strength. How? You're having an argument with somebody. What happens? We try and express our strength. We try to show that we are strong by letting our anger get out of control. We will, sometimes people break things. Sometimes we try to scream louder than the other person. It sometimes manifests into physical abuse. These are the types of things that happen. And why do we do it? Because we're trying to express our might. We're trying to express our strength, right? A person will stand up and stick out his chest and try to show, right? Like animals do this, right? Two lions, they'll stick out their chest and they'll roar, you know? And so two individuals will do this also. And when they can't intimidate each other and stop each other and, and subdue one another with words, then it'll go into physical, right? It'll go into action with the hands. The ulama write that this is not the strong person. To let your anger get out of control, that's not, that's not strength. A child lets his anger get out of control, right? A child, an infant, a toddler, someone very young, what do they do? They don't get what they want, they start screaming. So is that strength? We don't view that as strength for them. Why do we view it as strength for us when we get older? Strength is to take hold of our anger. That is actual strength. That, because anger, it, it comes and it makes our blood boil and we got, start feeling hot. And then it, it's like a pot, right? It bursts out. So it's very easy to, to act like that. What's difficult is to keep, that, to keep the, the lid on the pot. That's what's difficult. And whoever does that, they are the ones who have actually exercised strength, right? Because they have exercised patience. Any questions on Qahar? Okay, so we'll go on to Al-Wahhab. The next one is Al-Wahhab. Wahhab is, it means, what? The bestower. The person who gives. Now, there's a dua of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There's a verse of Quran also. In Surah Al-Imran it is mentioned. Very famous, commonly recited dua. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, Rabbana, uh, where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's in the verse, it is a verse of Quran, but the Prophet Sallallahu used to make this supplication, saying, Rabbana la tuziq qulubana, that, oh, our Lord, do not turn our hearts away after you have guided us, but grant us from your mercy. Indeed, you are Al-Wahhab. Indeed, you are the bestower. You are the giver. Now, the root of this word is Hiba. The root of Al-Wahhab is Hiba. Hiba means to give a gift. Right? A Hiba some, if you give a gift to some, someone, it means you have given them hibah. You have given them a gift. Now, the meaning of al-wahhab is that you make, or rather hibah, the definition of hibah is that you give, the, the owner of something gives away an item or gives something away that rightfully belongs to you without asking for recompense. That's what a gift is, right? 
that we own something and we give it away to somebody else and we make them the new owner of it and we also do not want any recompense. That's what a gift is, right? That makes sense? That's what a gift is. Whenever we give a gift, that's what we're doing. It's interesting, Rasulullah actually said that the person who takes back his gift is like that person who has vomited and then taken his vomit back. Like it's a very horrid thing to, to take back a gift that we've given to somebody. But amazingly enough, people still do it, you know. Uh, so Imam Ghazali writes that there's two aspects to understanding this, to understanding Wahhab or to understanding Hibah. That it is, one, one aspect is the ownership of what is given. So this item is the ownership of what is given. And the second is the absence of compensation. Right, so two aspects, giving, handing over the ownership and not, uh, and not taking some type of compensation for this. This is a gift. In reality, he says, none of us are Wahhab. None of us are Wahhab at all. Because our gifts are given for some type of recompense. Every single thing is given for some type of recompense. What are examples of this? We might think, no, I give a gift, I give a gift all the time. I don't want anything in return. You know, when we love somebody, when, if they're a friend of ours, whatnot, then we're giving them gifts and we don't expect anything in return. So he says, look, it can be tangible. It can also be intangible. It can be something emotional. It can be tangible like a commodity. It can even be a simple thanks. And how often do we hear people saying or we caught ourselves saying that, you know, I gave such and such person, I did a favor to them. They didn't even say thanks to me. This also is some type of compensation we wanted, right? Some recompense we wanted. We wanted to feel appreciated. Uh... We've, we might have heard people say that, no, you know, we might have heard our parents' generation, for example, saying uh, that, uh, you know, so-and-so, no, they, they came to my child's wedding and they gave an X amount of money. Now it's their child's wedding, I have to give them the same, otherwise it's not right. Right? This is a type of compensation. You're trying to give back or vice versa. They'll say, oh, you know, I gave them, I gave so-and-so's child a certain amount of money in their wedding and they only gave my child this amount. So were you giving the gift because you were happy for them or because you wanted something equal in return, right? Either for you or for your child. In either way, it's recompense. So our gift giving becomes nothing more than a transaction. This is what Imam Uzzah is saying. That when you want something in return, it's simply a transaction. When, when you give money to a store, then you're taking an item back. So similarly, you have given a gift to someone, you want something in return, this is a transaction. You've not given a gift, you've just given a mere, you've taken part in a transaction. And this is generally, this is our state. He says that uh, whoever gives in order to, give, to gain distinction, then praise, uh, or to gain distinction or praise or to avert blame uh, that, is, that would be engaged in it, then this is not having given a gift. Or this is some type of recompense being taken place. That you give so that people can give you distinction, right? You can get some type of distinction and people can give you praise. Or you fear that you would be blamed by not engaging in the action. This is all recompense. He says that had the performance of such an action uh, suited, not suited him better than refraining from it, then they would not have done so. Meaning, it better suits us to give, right? Even when we give charity, it, gives, it better suits us to give that charity. And had it not been better for us to refrain, then we would not have given. Had refraining from doing such an action been better for us, been better suited for us, then a person would have refrained from giving this, this gift or given this, giving this item or whatever it may have been. Now, he mentions that, <clears throat> what about that individual who, uh, he does something, he gives something away, and it's something that he prefers to keep for himself, and he does so only for the reward of Allah in paradise. 
is this recompense? You do it solely for the, you do it solely for the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to attain paradise. You don't do it, and it's something that you even wanted to keep. Is there recompense involved in this? He says, even this there is recompense. Because you're hoping for paradise. <laughs> you wanted paradise. And so this even this is a type of transaction because you're not taking, you're not making the transaction to get this commodity late right now. You're doing it to get it later on. So either you delay it or not, it's still a type of transaction. Now what about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He is Wahhab because He gives without any recompense. He gives without wanting anything in return. Does that make sense? Does anyone understand that? But doesn't he still ask for things like you want us to pray and stuff like that? So isn't that sort of... Right, so he wants us to worship. Okay, so could we say, well, he's giving us and he's giving us because he wants us to worship. However, we can't say that this is the case for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, he wants us to worship, yes. But is he giving so that we worship him? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows in his absolute knowledge those individuals that will never worship him. Yet he continues giving them also. Right? So he gives them knowing that they will never give him, they will never, they even deny his existence, but he continues giving them. Right? And Surah Rahman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so many times, how many, what, you know, uh, that which of the favors of your Lord will you deny? Right? So many times, Allah ta'ala mentions so many different things. And he's continuously giving, and he knows that, he knows that we cannot recompense him if we tried. And he knows that there's, so many of us that will never even worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that will deny His very existence, yet He continues giving to us. So He is truly giving without any recompense because He knows who will worship Him and who will not. Right? And he, he gives to some individuals less than He gives to others and they also worship Him. Right? So His giving us is not based on what we do for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or how we worship or how much thanks we show to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's not what His giving is based on. Right? And we see how many... We, it's, it's interesting that we see sometimes the most devout worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are those that are the most poor. Right? We'll find that sometimes the most generous of people are the ones who have the least amount of money. It's amazing. Right? That oftentimes we'll find that the wealthiest of people, yeah, they might give millions, but they have billions. And the person who has thousands will give thousands. Right? And they'll have nothing left. So oftentimes the people who are the most devout in their worship to Allah ta'ala are the ones who have the least the ones that we find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continuously takes, takes away from them. Right? Because Allah ta'ala owns everything. He owns everything. Even when you have children, the ulama write, having children, you should recognize that this child is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. This child is Allah's. He has, rather pla- he has, he has actually placed this child in your trust. So this child is a trust to, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you owe to try and raise this child properly. Everything belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Absolutely everything belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So He gives in whatever different ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deems fit as a test to us. Right? And we find, so sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala t- takes from us. We might lose our job, we lose our house, we lose our family, we, you know, there's deaths in the family. So many times people are losing and losing and losing, yet we find these individuals oftentimes to be the most devout worshippers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're written in our account. I mean, it's not like a, it's not really a commodity, right? These are, these are actions. They're not really something of ownership. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. You can't really say that our actions belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala either because 
then you're saying that our evil actions belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's not appropriate, right? Although all good and all bad is from Allah. Allah ta'ala creates good and He creates evil. Right? That we have to understand. It's not a, it's not a dualistic uh, approach that, you know, Allah is in battle with shaitan, good versus evil. No. There's no battling with Allah. <laughs> right? And so, uh, everything is owned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and we'll find, I mean, look at Rasulullah sallallahu His father died before he was born. His mother died when he was very young. He had just come back to his mother and she passed away. Then uh, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, died. Then soon after, uh, uh, you know, he lived obviously a life as an orphan. As he gets older and things start getting difficult for him, right? The boycott happens. All these types of things are happening. They're suffering. Then his wife, Khadija, she dies. Then Abu Talib, his outward protector, he dies. Constantly, Rasulullah is losing, 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 take, things being taken away from him. But who is more devout in worship than the Prophet? And who is more devout than the Anbiya? But they had the most difficulties, right? <clears throat> now, Imam Uzali, he goes on, he says that um, he, he does bring the example of a, a parent and their child. He says that this is the closest, this is the closest a person could be to giving without any recompense. Because, yes, although you know, parents do take care of their children, hoping that their children take care of them when they're older, but you, could you really say that you know, if this child was not to take care of their parents, then their parents wouldn't take care of them? Most likely not, right? The parents will still take care of their children. And you don't know if they're going to take care of you or not. So they, they still take care of their children. That this is the closest a person can come, this relationship. Even between husband and wife, there is a give and a take. There is recompense, right? But, uh, and the child to the parent, there is recompense. But the parent to the child, the parent gives to the child and takes care of them solely for the sake of the child. He does it for the sake of the child. However, if we think about the very, I think the second class we had uh, regarding uh, Rahman, Imam Ghazali said that a person who shows mercy, because that's what ha what's happening with a child, right? The child cries, so the parents rush to help this child, to give them the child what it needs, or as the child is growing up. Imam Ghazali said that mercy is something we do not because we are truly merciful, but we do it because, who remembers? We don't do it because we are truly merciful. Rather, we do it to end our own anguish, to end our own pain. That we are being bothered. We don't like this feeling, this grief that we have of somebody else suffering. So in order to end our grief and our pain, we seek to end the suffering of others. Right? So this is, this you could put this into that relationship of the parent and the child. The parent feels anguish, the parent feels uneasy that their child is suffering or the child has a need. And so then they, they go to help that child. But what they're also doing is help is ending their own suffering, their own anguish, their own pain. Right. So, however, he says now. <clears throat> I wanted to read a little paragraph from 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 this. Imam Ghazali says that whenever one seeks something for the sake of something else and not for its own sake, it is as though he is not seeking that very thing, for that is not the goal which he is seeking. The goal he is seeking is something else. This is like the one who seeks gold. He does not seek it for its own sake, but to attain food or clothes by it. Yet food and clothes are not sought for their own sake, but rather as a means to satisfy pleasure or ward off suffering. Now pleasure is sought for its own sake and not for another goal beyond it. And the case is similar regarding the avoidance of pain. 
So gold is a means to food and food a means to pleasure, while pleasure is itself a goal and not a means to something else. Does that make sense? So he's talking about doing something for the sake of that thing alone or for another or for the means of something. So he's talking about here our worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That most of us, we are worshiping Allah to gain paradise. So we can't say we're doing it solely for the sake of Allah because we're doing it for the sake of paradise. We're doing it for a reward. We're doing it to, to, to be protected from, from Jahannam, right? So he says that paradise becomes like pleasure in this example and our actions become, or rather, pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes like gold. That the only reason we are desirous of gold or money is because it is a means to comfort and it is a means to pleasure and it is a means to stay away from, to keep away from suffering. So similarly, we act not only to, not in order to please Allah, but in order that we may be saved from suffering and to have paradise. Then he goes on, he says that whoever worships Allah for the sake of paradise has made Allah a means to seeking it rather than making him the goal of his quest. The sign that something is a means is that no one seeks it if its benefit can be attained without it. So that if one's intentions could be achieved without gold, gold would neither be loved nor sought. For what is really loved is the benefit sought and not the gold. If paradise were attainable to one worshipping God for its sake, without worshipping without worshiping Allah, he would not worship Allah. Saying that if we could attain paradise without worshipping Allah, most of us would leave out the worshipping of Allah and, and try to attain paradise without that. And he says that whoever has no love but Allah and seeks nothing except Him and whose gain lies in delight at meeting Allah Most High, being near to Him and in accompanying the heavenly host who are close to His presence, He is the one who can be said to worship Allah for the sake of Allah and not in the sense that He is not seeking to gain, but in the sense that Allah, is him, Allah Himself is His gain and there is no gain beyond Him. This goes back to the example that we've shared about Rabia Basriya. Rahimahullah, right? Where she said that, uh, Oh Allah, if I worship you in order to attain paradise or to be kept, if I worship you in order to attain paradise, then keep it away from me. And if I worship you in order to stay away from the hellfire, then throw me into it. This is that concept he's talking about, right? Not a dua that we should make. Um, but that those people, that there are those people who do solely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Only to please Allah Ta'ala. They don't really they don't care about Jannah or Jahannam. They do it only to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A very high and lofty state. But then he goes on and he says that most of us in our worship with Allah, we are none other than uh, evil hirelings, right? People who have been hired to do something, working only for the wage he anticipates from it. Most creatures have not tasted this pleasure, meaning to do something solely for the sake of Allah, nor have they known it. So they do not understand the pleasure of contemplating. Uh, the, 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 what's it called? Uh, the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But only insofar as they speak it with their tongues. That most of us haven't had the pleasure of, of contemplating even the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We only, rather, we, we pretty much only give lip service. <clears throat> and so he says that this is wahad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives without any recompense. Without any recompense at all. The next name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any questions on that? Wahab? Yeah, no? Huh? Break? Maghrib. Oh, Maghrib? Maghrib? Is Maghrib time in? Yeah. 